Good morning, one and all. Wow, look at all of you. This is crazy. It's exciting. So appreciative of all of your patience as a church. Proud of you guys, really. I don't say that to... Well, I don't know why I say that other than the fact it's true. <laughs> it's going to be one of those mornings. If I don't stick to the page, all the vocabulary that I want to share with you just isn't coming up. But man, it's, uh, it's been uh, you know, quite a journey, obviously, and we still have a lot that we're rebuilding and a lot of new normal that we're going to find our way through. But this is a great, this isn't really the first step, but it's a great early step in us um, reclaiming, if you will, uh, part of the rhythms of our lives, the rhythms of our worship that we rely on so desperately. And uh, so I just so appreciate our congregation's um, flexibility and your patience and, uh, and your determination not to fall by the wayside, which would be a temptation for many. And so it's so great of you to, uh, to hear the voice of the Lord and to come back to worship and uh, as you're ready, if you're watching at home, as you're ready, uh, know that we are still taking safety precautions and we're trying to distance as best as we can. And even with the coffee being, you know, poured this morning and stuff like that, still spreading things out and stuff. We're not pretending like there isn't something to still be concerned with. So that's just in the for what it's worth category for you. But, um, you know, in, in our ministries... I'm particularly proud of because the leadership of our volunteer ministries has been nothing short of dedicated throughout um, these seasons, adaptable. It's really amazing how much flexibility we've needed as a church to cross territories that we've never had to before. None of us knew what we were doing. And everybody kind of kept that same spirit and that attitude. There weren't uh, a bunch of, um, you know, arrogant people saying, I know what we're going to do and that sort of thing. So it was just very refreshing to be a part of and seeing us through this season and a lot of things that we've learned we're going to keep doing. Um, this week in particular, I just, like I said, proud of all the ministry teams, but I just want to highlight one particular group of people. Their mission is to not be noticed. They're not ninjas. I know that you think we started a ninja ministry. But no, it's not ninjas. Um, they're ninjas to us. It's our, it's our tech teams, our sound and, and audio people that um, every week have to learn something new. They um, have to adapt to something as small as a software update that's changed the way we do things to um, how do we reach these lights just to reposition them so everything looks a little bit better and there aren't these strange shadows. And well, in order to reach those lights, you got to build this massive staging thing and you got to plan it in a week and you got to spend about three or four days here late into the evening tripping our security systems all the time, Dunbar. I'm looking at you and and just basically living here at the church and we would never know it, right? You didn't walk in and go, the lighting looks amazing today, right? You don't know because their goal is to not be noticed. And so all the things that they do and the time that they put in is so that you and I don't have to think about those things. And so I'm just really impressed and appreciative of, of what they do. And that's, of course, translating over to the internet side of our ministry, which is one of the new normals now. Right, Just because we can open the doors wider doesn't mean we just shut the feed off for people at home or people that are actually considering whether or not faith would be a church they would visit. That's how they're going to check us out. And so trying to make improvements with those sorts of things there. And all of that just takes much more time, energy, and creativity than I appreciate. 
I just say, oh, how about if we do this one little thing? You guys notice if you're watching from home, when you see the scriptures showing up at the bottom of the screen, but you can still kind of see through it and everything. That took weeks to plan and to figure out how to do that. Something I think is simple. And they said, okay, we'll figure it out. And then they go behind the scenes going, man, it's going to take forever. And they make it happen. So I just really appreciate them. I appreciate the fact that some of the changes that you've seen here, I mean, these light panels in the back were something that we were talking about doing down the road. We thought it would make it just a better visual for um, what we see on screen and all that sort of stuff. But it was thousands of dollars. And we're like, we're not doing that anytime soon. That's a luxury. It's not a priority. One of our volunteers, who I will not embarrass him, said, we can make it happen for hundreds. I'll build it. And did it. Surprised us with it. And we're very pleased and appreciative of that. So... Um, that's the fun of being involved in a church. That's what's great about being around God's people. That roll up your sleeves kind of mindset shows up in a lot of creative ways. And I've often thought that even though it's pushing buttons and sliding things and all that sort of stuff, it's still a form of worship or an expression of worship. The ones that are playing the chords and lifting their voices behind, uh, in front of the lights or whatever are the ones that we typically think of as our worship leaders, but it really is on both sides of it. So... All right, guys, it's enough commercial you get. I'm not bragging you up anymore, but a great team. A lot of fun to be around. If they say that they have some needs for volunteers, you're going to like hanging out with them because they're really creative and uh, supportive people back there. Uh, I say all that to say for the reasons I just said, but also to, to lead into this introduction for our message this morning because ministry, good ministry, creates an exhaustion. Good ministry and giving our lives to the causes that the Lord's leading us to or the people that the Lord's led us to, it costs us. And it costs us in particular in two ways. It costs us in a lot of different ways. But it costs us in particular in two ways. It robs us of our rest so often. If you're with me, you can give a nod, amen. If you're too tired to say amen, you can just nod and be like, yep, it drains you. It also takes you out of your comfort zones. Ministry doesn't allow you to keep your lines nice and clear. It blurs your lines up of the safety zones that you like or the expectations you have of how others are supposed to treat you. You have to chuck all those things right out the back window. People stuff is a different kind of exhaustion. And I often forget this. I know this can seem a little bit self-serving because it's what I do for a living and all. But I often forget that that's the case because I look at what people that I'm talking to, guys and girls in our church that I think are doing some real work and everything. And I'm going, you know, I got it kind of easy behind a desk and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, so it feels like it's not really what it really is in reality until I see some of you going through the same thing. And then I tell you the things that others have told me year after year after year. It's like you're carrying the burdens with people. It becomes its own form of exhaustion. You're vulnerable to heartbreak and frustration when you're living to reach people. I often think about the teachers who had me in school coming up. And, and even though I probably had the capacity, what was the phrase they always told me? Tell me if you've heard it too. You just don't apply yourself. It was like on every report card. He would do better if he applied himself. It sticks with me even today. The exhaustion of a teacher is I know where the end result where the student needs to be. I just, I don't think they're convinced. They don't see in them what I see in them. And so I'm pulling them along. And so you're thinking for two, you're hoping for two, you're, you're, you're bleeding for two to cross that finish line. It's an exhaustion. 
And this idea of going all in, which is so often required of good ministry, risks the lows of defeat when it doesn't go so well. When that student, and I'm just using that metaphor for our ministry analogy here, but when that student doesn't pass, that teacher carries the burden of the failure and says, I could have done this or I should have done that, when so often the student just didn't want to apply themselves. You see, this is the opposite of the gospel of success that says everything's great parking spots and promotions. If you're in God's will, you'll feel his pleasure with everything you do because it'll just work. That hasn't been our experience so much, has it, ministers of the gospel? I hope you understand that I'm using this phrase to apply to those of you who are serving the Lord Jesus in your own capacity, in your own corners, in your own spheres of influence, because the minister isn't just the one with the white collar. The minister of the gospel of peace is all of us as we step out in Christ. But some of you can attest to the fact that it's a good kind of weary. It's a a relieving kind of weary. It's a strange kind of exhaustion. Because it also gives you the reward of seeing change. I so often say, I, it's like I get to get a front row, dead center seat for the play that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. The results of his work and his efforts and all the things that he's doing. And I just got a ticket to be the guest of honor to sit right in the front and watch you change and watch you flourish and grow. This is a good kind of exhaustion. It's a rewarding kind of exhaustion. Even if the rewards aren't constant, they're enough to get you through to the next stop. But good ministry moves us outside of our comfort zones to show that outsiders still are loved by Jesus. This is going to be a big part of what we talk about as we come into John chapter 4 this morning. We're finally moving into a new chapter. Isn't it always exciting? When it feels like progress, John chapter 4. What we're going to see here in this text is that Jesus is going to demonstrate that he's willing to tirelessly go further than others are willing to go in order to save one human soul from an eternity in hell. Now, the example that we're going to see in Scripture has multiplication payoff as well. It's not just one who responds but he's willing to do it for the one, tirelessly. What's going on in our text as we come to verse one is that Jesus is determined he needs to move on from this mode of ministry that's about baptism and the crowds flocking to him. Remember we said last week that John the Baptist was warned by his followers, hey, we got some competition around the corner. The one that you prophesied about, he's baptizing too, and I think the crowds like him better. What did we say about John? He humbly, in, 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 he would say in the only way that he could respond after witnessing and being impacted by the glory of Jesus Christ, he humbly responds with, good, it's about time. This is what I've been waiting my whole life to see, is for him to increase so I can get out of the way. So there's no competition between those two. John's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, yield the franchise. I'm going to send people to him. Let's advertise that this is taking place. But what starts to develop is the Pharisees are starting to capitalize on an opportunity. They are always looking for a way to discredit Jesus. And if they can do it through dissension, then they're going to jump on this and move towards that. Jesus being savvy and ahead of their game. And, and the scripture says that he knows what's in the human heart. He says, look, we're not sticking around for this. 
This isn't what I came for is to build massive crowds. This isn't what I came for to constantly debate the Pharisees. We'll do that in good time. But we came to reach the lost. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. It seems as though Jesus didn't see the value of getting caught up in territorial drama or political spectrums or those sorts of things to the detriment of his mission to save lost people. So let's come into this at verse 1 to see how Jesus crosses even this physical fatigue and other kinds of fatigue barrier in order to accomplish his mission. Let's read. We've got just a handful of verses this morning. We're going through the first nine. And so we're, it's a little bit strange place for us to stop. I'm just letting you know now. And we're going to break this up into two sections. First six verses all together as we read. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parenthetically, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour for us is about noontime, heat of the day. And so Jesus has walked. And he is wearied. And he's thirsty. You might say, yeah, we would be too, right? But this is the son of God. In our theology, we explain it as Jesus is all God, but he's all man. And we get a demonstration of how all man he really is when we see moments, little statements like this, that his legs were tired. He created his own legs. And they got tired. He, he made that well. He knew that someone would dig that hundreds of years before, go a hundred feet deep, and that well was going to produce for a long time. It's still active today. He created it. He gave the earth the ability to feed us that well, and he needed a drink from it because his tongue got dry. It's amazing. We can't move on from this too quickly. Because we often think he's a distant God. He's not touched with what the scripture says, the feelings of our infirmities. He's removed from us. What could he know about what I'm going through right now? And yet we see over and over and over again that Jesus knows everything that you and I are going through. He was wearied from his journey. Jesus has an opportunity, as we're going to see here, a little bit this morning and a lot more in the coming weeks. He has an opportunity to to move out of this fatigue and engage with somebody who desperately needs this interaction to start a landslide of events in in an area that would otherwise be ignored. And Jesus just wants to perch on the side of the rocks and get a drink. He experienced the same physical fatigue that you and I do, and yet he found some way to do the next right thing for the person in need. It's important for us to think about this a little bit because we're wrestling a lot with the, the, the voices of uh, wise people in our life or gurus or any of these types of self-help sort of people or even from your own pastor or a small group leader or something who are constantly telling you you need, a, you need to rest, you need a Sabbath, you need to take a break. And that's really good advice. 
There's nothing evil or inherent in looking at a retirement date or anything along those lines. It's just that there is always on us the burden of, does somebody else need something from us? And we have to weigh those things out. Is it the right time for a break or is it the right time to press forward? So please don't hear just from Jesus one example in here that he never rested. Because the gospels tell us that he would say to the disciples, hey, let's get in the boat and push out. We got to move away from this crowd a little bit. They're pressing in so much. Or he would have alone time with his father. It was important for Jesus to recover and rest. But the example nonetheless stands that while he was exhausted, while he was walking around in a man's body, wearied from the journey, he needed a break. But press through that need in order to do what was right. It's interesting as I think about it now, I don't really even know if the scripture says he finally got that drink. <laughs> I'm wondering this. The conversation goes on like through the whole chapter. Wonder if he ever got that cup. Didn't seem to matter. Jesus also experiences emotional Fatigue. I want us to imagine the scenario here a little bit. It's only just beginning. We don't see it fully playing out, but we will as we continue to go through this gospel is that the crowds are always pressing in on Jesus. One of the reasons why he decided to move the ministry on because it was coming, becoming more about the big gathering instead of the message. So he moved it along to emphasize some different aspect and to continue to advance the mission. But we see the crowds are always pressing in. And you could have assumed that Jesus was walking around with a bag of money and just throwing cash in the air. That was the kind of enthusiasm that people had following him because he was the miracle worker. I'm getting a little tickle in my throat. Well, isn't Jesus in town today? Let's go see if we can get some healing from him. There wasn't a lot of sincerity with all of these requests or demands on him to continue to heal. But he created them. He saw the fall. He saw the destruction that was going on in their life. He felt every one. Their little tickle in the throat became this great burden to Jesus because he was going to lay their life down. Because that tickle in their throat represented the sin that has been infecting the population ever since the world fell. So Jesus is carrying the weight of what the crowds are asking of him, demanding of him. He finally gets away from teaching them and he talks sometimes in vague terms what we call the parables and he walks away and then the disciples are like, tell us more, we don't get it. All right, I got to teach a second lesson. So now he says to the disciples, this is what this means and this is what that means and all that sort of stuff. Well, and then they go and, and they're people too. So they go and start acting like humans and he's got to speak to them about their humanness. Give them salvation and hope and life constantly. And then let's not forget that because he, know what, he knows what he came for, that he's carrying the heaviness of the mission as well. That in just a few short years, I will lay my life down for them in the most horrific fashion to accomplish this mission. You ever had something on your mind that you know the resolution isn't, isn't available to you yet? Maybe it's a week away. Maybe it's a month away. What if you knew I'm here for another three years and what I'm going to do not only is going to cost me physical, brutal pain and ultimately death, but it's also the whole thing that's going to finally introduce and make clear the Father's plan of redeeming the people back. I mean, the burden that comes from the man's side of Jesus, if you will, or the stress of that. Jesus was tired, not just from a journey, 
He was like you and me. We have a long day, a fulfilling day, but an exhausting day. The most meaningful work often comes when you feel like you have nothing left. Those of you that will engage in some workouts and things where there's some instructor either on a screen or in a classroom or something like that, they'll tell you that most of your results will come when you're the most tired. If you press forward to keep doing like good form or something, if you're lifting weights or something, they'll say when you're shakiest or it's ugly or something like that, if you can continue to do good form, that's when your results really pay off. The difference between you and and that person who looks this way is the person that presses through when they have no more strength left or when they're tired. Paul says it in a little bit more spiritual context for us here. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. Paul so often ministered in the evenings and led churches and led worship on Sunday and all those kinds of things and then went out and started making tents for people to buy off him so he could fund the ministry. I worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, he says. Commentator Hughes says, you won't accomplish great things for God until you've learned to minister tired. Why do I bring all this up? Well, for one, because it's clear in the text, but also because I think it's starting to combat for us what we so often feel in American Christianity, that ministry fits clean lines. That the time I volunteer, I have a, we use it, and I use it reluctantly, but I, I hesitate to use the word volunteer in a ministry context. Because it feeds into an Americanized mindset of what service in the kingdom of God looks like. As long as you're not asking me to do this, then maybe I can sign up. As long as you don't ask this of me, then I'll do it. That kind of thing. That's, and, and this isn't really even to spew venom. This is, this is how I approach things too. And you've hired me to do this job and I still have this thing that's in my spirit that says, well, as long as they're not asking this of me, as though it's mine to control. We so often want to be able to dedicate the things that we feel like we can afford to let go of in our time and our resources and things. Just don't ask me for any more. Jesus had every excuse to say, look, you know, I just shut down the giant crowd thing. We're already exhausted. We're early into this. All I wanted was a drink of water. Please don't ask me to do any more than that. And yet he engages in a conversation that is going to send shockwaves through cultures for ages to come. So let's continue. Let's pick up in verse 7. We see that Jesus is going to cross a major cultural barrier. And he's doing that for all souls in the future to to, uh, benefit from. Verse 7, he says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her in his exhaustion, Give me a drink. For his disciples had not gone, had gone away into the city to buy food. So he sends them off. We need groceries. You guys go. Keep in mind where they are. He sends the disciples off to get the either paper or plastic when he goes to get his groceries. I don't know what they were doing in Samaria at the time. And, uh, and he, and he says, go into Samaria to get these. And that's just a mental note. We won't camp on it, but he sends them out to do business in Samaria. Verse nine says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's a really kind way of putting it. 
In fact, the translation for no dealings means no shared utensils, no shared plateware. We won't touch the same surfaces that you've eaten or drank, drank off of. I never know. Is it drank, drink, drunk? I hate that word. Drank. They have no dealings with Samaritans because the Samaritans to the Jews are disgusting our filth, our not even second-class citizens. And if we're being honest, the Samaritans think that way about the purest of Jews too. See, there's a rift that's happening. There's this racial divide that's taking place between Samaritans and Jews that goes back at least 700 years. You may recall from your Old Testament study that after the time of Solomon, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, northern, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom had 10 different tribes. Southern kingdom had two. And 700 years before this conversation, the Assyrians come in and they take the northern tribes out of their homeland. That's how they conquered territories. They said, if we remove them out of their geographic region, they'll lose a sense of nationalism, a sense of, uh, of ownership and everything. We'll disorient them and then we'll be able to own them for ourselves. They left the poor and the farmers and those kinds of people behind, but they took out the, the influential ones or the, the common people and got them out of there. The temptation became, even though that the Lord had often warned the Israelites not to intermarry with other um, uh, nationalities, those that were following other gods because of the obvious danger that would follow, the temptation must have proven too great or they were too weak or something. But those northern tribes started marrying Gentiles, thus polluting the purity of the Jewish race. A couple hundred years later, same thing happens to the two southern kingdoms. Yet they succeed. They didn't intermarry. And so they have a chip on their shoulder. They're looking at the disgusting Samaritans going, you guys blew it. You, you mixed the races. You did all that sort of stuff. We didn't. And so therefore, you're less than second class. You're disgusting to us. There was the, the northern kingdoms had a little bit of uh, error. They walk away from the Lord. They start integrating the, the God of Baal. But that was a short-lived thing, it would seem. And then they started coming back to Judaism. They said, we want to return. We want to help you with the temple. And they said, no, we're good. Don't need your help here. There's no room for repentance. We want to come back and make this right. Nope, you've already made your mistake. You're gross to us. They couldn't come back. There was no forgiveness. There was all this love lost. It was ugly. A common Jewish, a devout Jewish prayer at the time would have been, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Can you imagine the hatred that you would dare go to God and say, damn them to hell. Do that for me, would you please, Lord? Now, there's some people that we not necessarily pulling for, but we don't admit it. And they're saying, no, no, we're going to make it a part of our regular worship. You're going to hear our religious leaders saying this out loud. Lord, thank you for the salvation you've given us, but please don't extend it to them. They're gross. So when she says, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She means it. Let's not think as I was often thinking as I thought about the Samaritan woman as I heard about her so many times throughout the years. I would think that her response was very mousy, very meek. Oh, he's talking to me. 
I'm so privileged. I'm a Samaritan. She's thinking to herself, oh, now I'm good enough for you because you're thirsty. We're going to see later in our text that this is a woman who's been married five times. She's living with a guy now and everything. She's been through the worldly stuff a lot. She's probably got some leather over her heart, some callus going on there. She wasn't being this mousy, meek kind of, oh, look at, lucky me, he's speaking to me. She's putting him off. She's like, well, how dare you ask me for this water? This is hard earned for me. I got to crank this up. I've, I've come here in the middle of the day. It's hot. Now I'm good enough for you. No, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So Jesus, with one question, can I have a drink, please? He totally obliterates by example. This racial barrier, this example that has been left for them throughout the centuries of, you know, it's okay to think that others that are different than you deserve less than you. It's okay for you to be on your high horse as though you somehow, remember last week we talked about the fact, have you ever thought about where you were born and what family you came in, some for good or for bad or anything, but the fact that you're here right now hearing the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're in relative safety and all these things, and we go, I didn't orchestrate any of this. I didn't plan my birth. I didn't know where I'd show up. And yet they took ownership of it like they earned it, like they deserved it. Jesus doesn't also just break down racial barriers. He breaks down cultural barriers because he's speaking to a female. Now today, that's more celebrated and you got to overcompensate. But in that day, it was worse, way, way worse. The rabbis, now keep in mind, I'm going to keep picking on the rabbis because those are the ones Jesus picked on. Those are the ones he expected more from. They knew this book. They knew the heart of God. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a woman who was struggling thinking that God was being unfair to women based on what you see in the scriptures. And I'm like, what you see playing out there isn't the heart of God. That God is for the victim. That God is for the one who suffers. And it's hard for them to see that because they see that the way it was carried out. The leaders of the day, the ones who should know better, they wouldn't even greet a woman in public. The expression was, oh, there goes one of those bruised, bleeding Pharisees, because if they were so pure and clean, if there was a woman in public, they'd cover their eyes and they'd walk into poles. So they'd say, oh, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, because they can't even, they can't even see a woman. I'm going to pretend like she doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't hesitate. After Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection, Rabbi Judah ben Alei announced, one must utter three doxologies every day. Praise God that he did not create me a heathen. Again, like it's in his control to not be born a believer or an unbeliever. Second doxology, praise God that he did not create me a woman. Third doxology, praise God that he did not create me an illiterate person. Can you hear the high horses getting higher and higher and higher, packaged in the context of devout religion? When we understand the culture that Jesus is engaging this woman in, we understand how mind-blowing and how, how what a simple task is to, to move heaven and earth for this Samaritan woman. But there's a caution. Like I said, we have to handle these things delicately and differently today. 
And not because I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing and suffering a social media backlash. If you knew how little time I think about that kind of thing. The idea is this. The wokeness of Jesus, if you're not familiar with that phrase, woke is you're aware of how everything should be and you're politically correct. The wokeness of Jesus is not reported to simply elevate the status of women in society. You see, there is such a movement today that if I teach from this text, I should only use it to talk about how we should treat women. But the wokeness of Jesus is not reported to simply elevate the status of women in society, though it does that. And it's one of the examples I use over and over and over again to help our society and our culture understand that Jesus was not anti-woman. Paul was not anti-woman. Moses was not anti-woman. All the ones that are so commonly blamed. It does that. It elevates and puts them in their proper and right place. But it's really to elevate the grace of God to all people. We can so easily miss the gospel in this if we modernize it so that we just use the text to elevate one distinct person over another. The reality is he created male and female in the beginning. He created them all with the same uh, precious intent. He created them all with the same love. He never distinguished between their value. The wickedness of mankind in a culture of sin has created that. Unless we forget, let me see if I can say it this way. Unless we forget, those that are saying there are no distinctions between any of us, everyone should be allowed to do what the other person can do. Everybody gets the same chance, blah, 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 blah. There's no distinctions are the same ones that are saying, but this distinction really counts. This distinction really matters. Make sure you don't cross a line over there. Make sure you keep these divisions really, really clear so nobody can cross over it. That's what's going on. There's confusion. Everybody's the same, except for them, except for them, except for them. These things need to surrender to the gospel. In the gospel, we find balance, we find order, we find complement, we find value in the way he created male and female. Hughes also says for us, he says, the great glory of the church is that the gospel of Christ crosses barriers. We don't have it all figured out. There are some times where we're going to say things to someone perhaps of the opposite sex or someone with a particular sexual orientation or something like that. And go, Should I have said that? Do I, do I say it this way? It's a confusing time. And we don't know what our motivations are half the time. Am I trying to be politically correct or am I trying to prove that I'm not politically correct? We don't know sometimes where to fall. The gospel holds us to a higher standard. If we're approaching people out of love and mutual respect because they have been created in the image of God, we'll figure out some of those other things. What barriers are you being challenged to cross today? It may not be of the distinctions of the genders or it may not be racial barriers or anything like that. I do recognize that where we live, there's not a lot of that that we contend with. But there are barriers We have our minds made up of the things that make us comfortable and the things that make us uncomfortable. The positions that people take that we agree with and those that we disagree with. 
The church today is guilty of staying in their comfort zones. We want to stick in our own lanes of race or we want to stick in our own uh, lanes of of gender and we want to stick in our own lanes of of politics and occupation or maybe even age. I just like my own people or I like my own socioeconomic background or those kinds of things. We are just as guilty, it would seem, as the world as picking those that we can relate to, us four no more. And not being pressed or pushed out into those more uncomfortable areas. And Jesus is demonstrating for us, if we want to advance the gospel, that's no longer allowed to us. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an affinity group. Let's make one other point with a verse that we glossed over quite quickly back to uh, verse 4. It's a very important point. We don't have a lot of time to camp on it, but it's worth considering. That Jesus crossed, I'm sorry for the clunky way of saying this, but Jesus crossed the self-determining mindset for our example. This is the son of God, the creator of all these things that we talked about. And yet he didn't appeal to his own wish list. He kept pointing to the father, his will, his plan. It's his direction for my life. I'm just doing what the father shows me and tells me to do. Verse four says he had to pass through Samaria. You can look at this a couple of different ways. I think both ways apply. Just depends on how much we emphasize one over the other. He had to, could mean an an era, I mean an area of convenience because Samaria was on the way to where they were going. So you could say, well, we had to go that way. It was the only road in. But the most devout Jew, because of their hatred of Samaritans, would cross the Jordan, add miles to their journey and go around. So there was another way. Apparently that way didn't matter a whole lot to Jesus. He didn't need to avoid getting any Samaritan on him. Didn't really care about that. But he also might have had to pass through. And this is most uh, common with the use that John has throughout the rest of the gospel. Is that when we see things like he had to or he must. Usually is rolling into it the will of God. That there is a supernatural order that's going on or a sovereignly designed order that Jesus is adhering to or he's surrendering to. And it would seem as though that we could back it up and say, well, it seems like he was supposed to have this appointment with this woman. Seems like he meant to find her there. It seems like he meant to say, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink from you? When we look at it this way, instead of seeing that God is just determining for us, you will do this, you don't have a choice, you will go there. Instead, we see something different. And a commentator gave me a great sentence for this that I want to share with you. Richard says that this reveals the loving, creative, personal will of God whose intentions for humanity promise only hope and a bright future. If we look at Jesus must go through Samaria as to what it opened up for this woman, what it, opened it up, what it opened up for the Samaritans, we would say, well, that's a good kind of order. That's a good kind of expectation. That's a good kind of determination. Jesus dismisses throughout his, throughout his entire ministry every opportunity to take the easy way out. Satan takes him into the wilderness to tempt him. He responds to all three of those temptations with the, the word that comes from his father to withstand it, to not take the easy way out because Jesus is preparing for a brutal end. He is preparing for death on a cross. He's not going to take the easy way out now. So how are we looking at these first nine verses of John chapter four? What is this setting us up to contemplate for the couple of weeks ahead? 
I want to ask you, what barriers are you willing to cross for the salvation of those in need? Now, right then and there, some of us just go, oh, I just don't think about that enough. I, I confess, my, I'm pretty much blinded with how do I get through today? And if I can get through today in an efficient route with less rabbit trails and distractions and everything, that's a good day for me. How, what barriers would you cross for the reward of knowing that you did what counted? That's a different way of looking at things. What if it matters more for me to put my head on a pillow at night saying what we did was exhausting, but it was worth it. It was uncomfortable or scary, but it was worth it. Will you sacrifice your own rest? Will you sacrifice your ideology or your feelings of safety? Will you sacrifice your willingness or your, your uh, right to an opinion? Will you sacrifice your personal pleasure or your sense of control for your savior? C.S. Lewis challenges us pretty profoundly as he has a tendency to do on this idea of going into things with risk, going into things that are uncomfortable or exhausting. And he says it like this. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around the hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. One last thought before we wrap this up. This is about more than having a good example from Jesus to be kind to others and change the world through breaking down cultural barriers. I could take this text in most woke places in our country and perhaps around the world and get a standing ovation for what Jesus accomplishes here. But that isn't the point of the text. It's an application of the text, but it isn't the point. The whole point of the gospel is that Jesus did this for you and me. We were the outcasts. We were the disgusting ones because of our sin, because of, because of how we were born, things that we couldn't control. We were born in our sin. And Jesus says, I will cross all the barriers that your sin has put between you and a holy God. I will cross through those to save you from your sin. Let's not forget that we are, we are carrying a gospel that does more than just shape and influence a culture. It has shaped and changed our very soul and the nature in which we walk around in this world. This is the freedom that comes because Jesus was willing in the midst of his weariness to plop down next to a well and to engage in a woman that others had forgotten, discarded, and were disgusted by. All of that was to lead to the ability to do the same thing for you and me. And that's why he is worth our praise. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer. Prepare to lift the Lord's glory up again in our song. Lord, we thank you, Father, for what you do. We thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of your word, the beauty of your example. But, Lord, the power of your spirit to do these things.
Thank you, Lord, for doing it for us. Thank you for rescuing us from our shame, from our abandonment. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from our sins. It's in your perfect and beautiful name we pray. Amen.